Hi, I'm Diana Penunchal, Associate Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association, and you're listening to Call Number with American Libraries. This episode, we're diving into the colorful world of comics, graphic novels, and manga. First, American Libraries Associate Editor Megan Bennett speaks with Jenny Robb, head curator of the Billy Ireland Cartoon Library and Museum at Ohio State University in Columbus. Then, I hit the halls of ALA's 2023 Annual Conference and Exhibition in Chicago for rapid-fire interviews with graphic novelists Pedro Martin, Harmony Becker, Kazuki Buishi, and Dave Scheidt. And finally, I chat with Jillian Rudis, school librarian at the Metropolitan Expeditionary Learning School in New York City, who serves as Japanese culture and manga librarian for the city's Department of Education. But first, here's a word from our sponsor. Have you heard? Booklist Reader, Booklist's new book browsing guide offering reading recommendations to patrons of all ages, is now available in print. Go to booklistonline.com to find out how you can order print copies for distribution at your library. Already subscribed? Booklist subscribers can share issues digitally for free. Visit Booklist's website for more details. Ohio State University's Billy Ireland Cartoon Library and Museum in Columbus houses the world's largest collection of print cartoon art. American Libraries Associate Editor Megan Bennett talks with Jenny Robb, head curator of the library, to find out more. What draws you to this art form of cartoon art? I originally became interested in cartoons from a perspective of history. I was majoring in history as an undergraduate, and I was interested in how Victorian working class women were portrayed in popular media. And the most fascinating examples that I could find were cartoons, cartoons in the magazine Punch and and other similar types of magazines. What struck me about them is that they really could give the reader, today's reader, the contemporary reader, a lot of insights about the culture and the society of the time period. And that uh, we, as historians, weren't really looking at cartoons in that way. We were looking at cartoons more as just something to illustrate text, but not as primary sources. And so I, I was really drawn to, to thinking about cartoons and, and how we could use them in historical research. And from there, I really started to get interested in, in all different kinds of cartoons and comics, editorial cartoons, comic strips, um, what's become known now as graphic novels, and uh, it just took off from there. How early do the collections go back? What is the breadth of history represented in the library and the museum? We have works that go all the way back to the 17th century, and we're collecting uh, things that are being published today. So it's a pretty wide range. We do focus on American, specifically U.S. cartoons and comics, but we have lots of examples of cartoons, particularly Japanese manga, as well as European comics. But we, we do have examples from all over the world. But we try to really cover comprehensively, as much as that's possible, print cartoons and comics or still cartoons and comics. We do have a a small animation collection. There's a lot of crossover in terms of of animators and comics creators, a lot of inspiration back and forth, but our focus is on print and or, or still cartoons and comics. And knowing that it has this kind of centuries long span to the collection, I mean, how would you describe the way that 
I mean, comics and comic art has evolved over time and how that maybe is reflected in how the collection changes. Well, one of the most important ways that it has evolved is in the technology used to distribute cartoons and comics. So, you know, we go all the way back to the days when, uh, you know, it was an engraving or an etching or a woodblock print that would be uh, produced and sold in print shops. And then, of course, uh, the technology advanced and, and publishers were able to include cartoons or proto-comics in journals and magazines, uh, and then eventually in daily newspapers, of course, which became uh, very popular and were cheap enough that everybody could afford them. And so, so many people had access to editorial cartoons and newspaper comic strips. Of course, then uh, we have the comic book, what we think of, you know, the single issue comic book, which was a story serialized which started in the 1930s. And then, you know, all of this has changed with the internet and with digital. So now we have completely different ways of both creating comics and cartoons, but also distributing them. So that's one of the things that I think our collection does. You can look at that evolution in terms of, of how cartoons uh, have been created and then and then distributed to an audience. You know, of course, the content has changed dramatically. What people laughed at in uh, 1725 is not what people are laughing at today. Different kinds of stories are being told. I believe that we're living in a golden age of cartoons and comics right now because you see all different kinds of genres. You see all different kinds of subject matter, different voices can tell their stories through cartoons and comics. So it's it to me, it's it's really a golden age. What would you say are some of the standouts of your collections? Um, I think one of our most popular collections is uh, the original art for the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes, uh, created by Bill Watterson. So uh, it's one of the most popular and successful comic strips of all time. Um, Bill only created it from 1985 until 1995. So there's only, sadly, 10 years worth. Um, but we do house most of the original art of that collection. And that's one of the highlights for people who are big fans of his work to come and see, you know, his his actual drawings, his um, his lines, his hand at work. So that's, I think, one of the most popular things. The largest collection that we ever received is called the San Francisco Academy of Comic Art Collection. And this is a really fascinating one. It was created by a man named Bill Blackbeard. And he realized in the 1960s and 70s that libraries around the country were discarding all of their bound volumes of newspapers for very good reasons, space issues and, um, you know, concerns about preservation of the newsprint. He was trying to study the comic strip, the history of the newspaper comic strip. And he realized that uh, documenting comics with microfilm was not going to be sufficient. A lot of what we grew up with in terms of newspaper comics were color Sunday comics, microfilm is black and white, um, but also just the, the quality of the images for graphic art was not sufficient. And so he founded his own nonprofit, the San Francisco Academy of Comic Art. He went around to libraries and said, I'll take these bound volumes off your hands. And he collected massive amounts of newspaper comics. He kept the newspaper pages, some, some comic sections. Sometimes he kept the whole bound volume, but he amassed about 75 tons of material that libraries were getting rid of. And Ohio State University was able to acquire the collection 
in the late uh, 1990s, it's we think about 3.5 million items. And it's just an extraordinary collection that doesn't exist anywhere else. It could never be recreated today. And we are slowly, slowly cataloging all of it to make it available to researchers. There's just millions of comic strips that were created um, since the, the dawn of the newspaper comic strip in the 1890s. And a lot of them haven't been seen in in a hundred years or or more. So it's wonderful that we're able to provide access to researchers who are increasingly becoming interested in in studying the popular culture that people were consuming. Personally, do you have a favorite item or specific collection in the library? I am partial to our Hale scrapbook, which is a, an amazing, huge scrapbook that was created sometime between about 1750 and 1830. We don't know exactly when, but somebody took the time to paste in cartoons from the time period. And these are social satire, political satire, all different kinds of cartoons and comics, other things as well, some newspaper articles and drawings and letters and things. So it was very, somebody very meticulously pasted all of these things into this giant scrapbook. But there's some real gems in there that are that are incredibly rare. One of my favorites is a cartoon making fun of the first woman scientist, the first woman to be paid to be a scientist. She was an astronomer. Her name is Carolyn Herschel. And of course, um, the cartoonist at the time made fun of her for stepping out of her domestic sphere and to, to actually pursue science. Uh, so there's just all kinds of gems like that in this scrapbook. For the most part, they would have been sold individually or in series by a print shop. So somebody who published cartoons and they would be put up in the windows of the shop so anybody could see them, but only the middle and upper classes really could afford to actually purchase them. So we're pretty sure that whoever created the scrapbook was somebody of means. And this would have been entertainment for the evening. You'd bring out the scrapbook of all these old cartoons. You know, this is, of course, before you had other ways of entertaining uh, your guests uh, for an evening. For the typical people or groups that utilize the cartoon library, I imagine maybe students or professors because of course you're at the university, but I mean, what is the range of fields of study that scholars or researchers come to use the library for? So our reading room is open to anyone who wants to come and, and either do research or even just look at comics and cartoons because they're fans um, of the art form. I would say that a lot of students and faculty from Ohio State make use of our reading room. We have classes usually about 50 or 60 different classes per year who come and look at uh, items from our collection that pertain to specifically what they're studying. So we have history classes, art history, English, American studies, African-American studies, uh, you know, you name it, it, it really is, is a lot of the arts and humanities uh, types of classes that come in and make use of this material. But because we are the largest collection of cartoon and comics materials in the world, we do have people who are coming from all over the place to to do research because we do have such a unique collection. So we get researchers um, literally from around the globe, um, certainly from from all fifty states, and we're you know always thrilled when when people discover us and and come to use our resources. Whether or not they're fans of the art form, what do you think visitors can learn from the Cartoon Library and Museum? I think for a lot of people who come to look at the resources that we have in our library, there's a bit of nostalgia. So they're seeing some of their favorite 
comics uh, characters and stories and and creators. I think with our with the original art collection, it is unusual to be able to see the actual original art. So most of the, the way that we mostly consume comics and cartoons is is what's reproduced in books or newspapers or even reproduced online. So when you come and see our art collection, you can really see the hand of the artist. Another thing that we have really tried hard to collect is the papers of cartoonists. Uh, and this includes their correspondence, um, whether it's, you know, with their editor or their syndicate or their peers. And so we have a lot of interesting correspondence from a number of cartoonists that we can learn a lot about cartoonists um, process, about the way they think about cartooning, about the form. There's not one answer <laughs> as to what people are getting out of it. I, I do think in the end, we have something for everybody. And, and in addition to our reading room, we now are, are fortunate enough to have a museum uh, we have three exhibition galleries and that are dedicated to celebrating cartoons and comics. And, and so we have something for the casual uh, observer and, and someone who's just maybe interested in seeing a piece of their childhood, as well as someone who's you know, seriously researching a particular aspect of cartoons and comics. Unlike other collection development and reader's advisory tools and publications, subscriptions to Booklist and Booklist Reader help drive the mission of ALA. Not only are you receiving the most trustworthy and reliable content in the industry, but your support also helps ALA advocate on behalf of libraries and assist those facing an unprecedented number of book challenges. Subscribe now at booklistonline.com. This year's annual conference featured many voices in comics and graphic novels. At author panels and events across the exhibit hall, graphic novelists shared insight on the process of crafting their books. I spoke with a few graphic novel authors in Chicago last month about their work and what comics, graphic novels, and manga influenced them. Hey, I'm Pedro Martin. I'm the author-illustrator of Mexican, a graphic memoir, which comes out uh, August 1st. What graphic novel, manga, or comic, either now or during your childhood, was really influential to you in your work? Well, growing up, we didn't have a lot of book books in the house, but I had a lot of brothers. So it was just Mad Magazine everywhere. That was our thing. And because they were my brother's books and I wasn't allowed to get them, that's, I wanted them more. So... So once I finally got my hands on them, and this is actually like where I learned how to read and draw was from, from Mad Magazine, because there was so much uh, silent cartooning going on in Mad Magazine. So as a kid, not knowing how to draw or not knowing how to read, I could figure out what the story was visually. And then eventually I started kind of picking up the, the key phrases and explosions and stuff and sounding all that stuff out. And then eventually like, oh, I can figure out all this stuff. And it was really wonderful and subversive because later on when you started reading stuff like Richie Rich and, you know, those kind of books are like, these aren't as funny as this other weird thing. So that's what it was. Mexican started on Instagram. You started kind of posting your comics on there and kind of gaining a little bit of a following on there yeah. too. So what was that experience like for you, kind of self-publishing and then creating this fan base online? Oh, that was scary because I really, I really wasn't, did not intend anybody to read it, quite honestly. Like I was just, a friend of mine just said, you got to put these out. These are really interesting. And as a different voice than what's out there and so I just started putting them out and then it once the response started coming back in and people started people who weren't of Mexican descent were like oh my family does that too and we're from you know Laos or you know 
you know, we're from India and we also drink Coke out of a plastic bag. And once that kind of started getting around that people were like, oh, this is this is a thing. And, and so I just kept going. And the more specifics I got with the stories, the more people reacted to it. So so once that all kind of kicked off, it was just really a wonderful kind of explosion of people being followed. But now, like now that a lot, a lot of people are following it, now I'm kind of nervous and I'm kind of like tentative with some of the st- stuff I want to tell. My name is Harmony Becker. I am the author of Himawari House. So what graphic novel, comic, or manga from now or from your childhood has been most influential to your work and why? I think the most influential manga to my work has been the series Honey and Clover by Umino Chika. Um, It is a story about a bunch of art university students and it follows their journey over the course of several years. And um, language is a big part of Himawari House, like when there's language barriers, there's fuzzy text and things like that. Um, How did you decide to visualize the way that the characters communicated and interacted, especially when there was language barriers? Um, I wanted that to be something really, really integral to the text because I wanted to put people into that experience of what it feels like to have somebody talking to you but you don't understand what they're saying to you. Um, and that was the, the best way that That's I had to come up with that. And then on the flip side, when like the vibes were really good between the friends, you know, how did you visualize that friendship and connection as well? Um, It was very much based on relationships and friendships that I had made when I was studying abroad. You sort of make a a family out of the people who are there, um, and you bond over the shared experience of being a foreigner and of being somebody who's almost become like a child again in a new country. Um, So yeah, just drawing on those experiences um, and the experience of of just feeling like you can totally be yourself around somebody and that they don't judge you and that they they love you for who you are. Hi, I'm Kazuki Buishi. I'm the uh, creator of the Amulet graphic novel series for Scholastic Graphics. What comic, graphic novel, or manga was most influential to your work from your childhood? From my childhood, um, there was a lot. uh, But I think I would point to Garfield as being the one that really started everything. But later in my life, it was Nausicaa, the Valley of the Wind, and Bone by my fellow panelist, Jeff Smith, that inspired me to make something like Amulet. I hadn't seen anything like that before I read those two. And I read before that you um, had the idea for Amulet when you were about 19 years old. So what has been the highlight of actualizing this idea from your teenage years to now? It's a relief (laughs) to see it in physical form. You know, I... Yeah, I didn't think it was going to be this large. I, di- I didn't know it was going to be such a long story. Uh, so that's a surprise. Um, and, and now, yeah, I feel excited to work on the next thing. And I get to work on something new. And that's a, that's kind of that's a new thing for me because <laughs> I've been on this for a long time. My name is Dave Scheid. I am the author and co-creator of Mayor Goodboy. Agents of Slam wrapped up and a lot of other cool stuff. What comic book, graphic novel, or manga, either something you're reading now or something from your childhood, was influential to your work? I think as a kid, probably Mad Magazine kind of blew my mind as a kid, just because it kind of, uh, I don't know, it showed you kind of, I, I wasn't aware that you could do certain things in comics, you know? Like it could be gross and weird and scary and, you know, crude. It, it was kind of just whatever you want to make. It kind of, uh, 
kind of opened my brain a little bit. So probably Mad Magazine, yeah. I read that you try to splash a little bit of horror mm-hmm. into Mayor Good Boy. Totally, yeah. So, yeah, I was wondering if you could chat a little bit about, like, how you're kind of sprinkling in those more horror or edgier elements mm-hmm. into this graphic novel that's meant to be for every kid to read. Yeah, I think in general, I think there's there's always, like, little horror elements or homages in everything I do. And, you know, most times something with Mayor Good Boy, it's just, like, passive dialogue or if it's our main character Abby her bedroom's covered with like Godzilla posters and Dracula posters and stuff like that a lot of it is kind of just like world building stuff like background stuff like you know that kind of just informs who they are um I just grew up loving horror so it's always important for me to I like just sneaking that into books even if it's not overtly horror I like a little nod you know a little keep a little spooky in it you know when kids read something they read things differently I think as adults we kind of just read it front to back, but kids notice things in the background and stuff like that. For me, it's kind of just like uh, maybe they'll seek that out, you know, or maybe they already like that and see themselves represented in that, you know, because I think like uh, in some way or form, everybody kind of loves horror or something spooky and scary, and it doesn't have to be your whole thing, you know. Like the kids in Mary Goodbye are super cute little clean-cut kids, but they love vampire movies, you know, so it's kind of like, I don't know, maybe kids could see themselves in that, you know, it doesn't have to be their whole thing. It's July, which means it's time to celebrate Booklist's Graphic Novels and Libraries Month. Head over to the Booklist website to register and watch webinars focused on graphic novel readers advisory and collection development, enter the Read Graphic Sweepstakes to get free swag for your library, and start reading this year's Guide to Graphic Novels, currently free and open to everyone on booklistonline.com. Manga is an umbrella term for comics created and published in Japan, iconic for its right-to-left panel reading style, and the art form is growing more and more popular with readers in the United States. I spoke with Jillian Rudis, school librarian at the Metropolitan Expeditionary Learning School in New York City and founder of the website Manga and Libraries. She shared the benefits of reading manga and her tips for librarians who want to develop collections of their own. What are some of the values behind and the benefits of reading manga from a K through 12 librarian's perspective? Um, I can probably narrow this down into four main ideas. So when I usually think about manga or I present about manga, I think about joy, representation, literacy, and social emotional development. And by joy, just plain and simple, reading manga sparks joy. If readers have access to manga and can embrace and celebrate their love of reading manga with the community, then this may not only spark a lifelong love of reading, but personal joy. (laughs) And representation, manga often represents and reflects the visible and invisible identities of readers and their lived personal experiences. And manga can also provide an opportunity for readers to learn how to understand and reflect on their lives and the lives of others. Literacy, of course, reading manga can build a variety of literacy skills for readers, including being able to analyze the text for conflict, theme, and character, and being able to develop visual literacy skills by understanding the art styles and visual language used in manga. And last but not least, social-emotional development. Social-emotional learning allows readers to develop their identities, express empathy, manage emotions, make healthy choices, and build supportive interpersonal relationships. And this can all be done through reading manga and reflecting on manga. So those are four main ideas I think about when I think about manga. And what are some essential manga titles you'd recommend for librarians to stock in their libraries? Well, this is hard because there's so much great manga that comes out weekly, and it's really almost impossible to keep up with. But 
I try to think of five must-haves for each different age group. So five titles that I would recommend for elementary school students are Alice in Kyoto Forest, Nicola Traveling Around the Demon's World, Little Witch Academia, The Evil Secret Society of Cats, which is hilarious, <laughs> and Penguin and House, which I think is just absolutely adorable. And five titles that I would recommend for middle school students are Call the Name of the Night, Kaiju Number Eight, Sasaki and Miyano, Skip and Loafer, and Toilet Bound Hanako-kun is really popular. I can't even keep it on my shelves. And I guess five titles I would recommend for high school students are Blue Lock, which I also can't keep on my shelves. That's the soccer manga. Uh, Blue Period, Jujutsu Kaisen, Sakamoto Days, and Spy Family. Tell us about your book, manga, and libraries, and your website of the same name. What inspired you to curate that book and start the website? So I had been presenting locally to librarians about graphic novels and comics and manga, and I had been doing that for years. But once the pandemic started and everything went online, I figured this was the perfect opportunity to start trying to bring this content to a worldwide audience. So I started hosting a monthly webinar series titled Manga and Libraries uh, with fellow manga librarians and experts from around the country. And this series now has 12 webinars, which can be found at my website, manganlibraries.com, along with manga resource lists and manga book lists. And then last summer, I wrote a book with ALA Editions, which is Manga and Libraries, a guide for teen librarians. And it covers topics such as Manga 101, Manga Collection Development and Programming, Representation in Manga, social-emotional learning and manga, and so much more. And I mainly did this because as the host of a webinar series, I didn't have a lot of opportunities to share my personal knowledge and expertise. So I figured writing a book for librarians was the best way for me to share the work that I've been doing in my school with my students and with manga. And now I'm continuing to do this work by hosting workshops and panels and webinars for schools and libraries and organizations all over the world. And I do have quite a few uh, exciting announcements that I'll be making over the summer. So please stay tuned for what's next in manga and libraries. What needs did you recognize that librarians had in terms of learning more about manga? So I actually feel like there's two types of people that come to my workshops or use my resources. And it's like the librarians that just love manga, can't get enough of manga, and just are super fans of manga themselves. And then it's also librarians that just really know nothing about manga and they're scared of it or intimidated by it because it really is a, a lot to understand. You know, the books are coming out constantly. There's so much to stay on top of. So it's just two types of librarians are using my resources and both are finding the resources helpful. I had recently done a workshop and one of the librarians there said to me, like, I've been reading manga my whole life and never once did I think about the social emotional like lens that you can use manga for. And I was like, yes, I taught someone who knows like everything about manga, something new. So I really think that we can just learn from each other. And that's what I love so much about the webinars, the communities and the workshops is we could talk together, learn together and share ideas because I don't know everything. Um, so it's it's a good, safe space, I think, for librarians to learn and grow together. Lastly, do you have any other tips or advice for librarians who want to incorporate more manga into their collections or introduce them? Yeah, I guess I would have three main tips. I mean, I have a, a whole book of tips, <laughs> but three main ones that I would pull out that I think I talk about um, with other librarians in my workshops is tip one, making sure you're asking the readers what they want. 
So readers want manga. We need to make sure we're providing opportunities for them to tell us what they want. So we can either do that by directly asking them what they want or providing a book recommendation box. I have one on my counter with a pile of post-its so students can just write down what they want. Or you can build a group of readers uh, to have a manga advisory department is what we have. We call it Mad for Mel's, the manga advisory department for Mel's. Uh, and they work to help me with like programming and building the collection and uh, showcasing the collection and stuff like that. So that would be tip one, ask the readers what they want. Tip two, making sure manga has its own section in the library. You don't want it to be hiding or mixed in with something else. So I have manga all by itself. It's about 15 bookcases. Kids know exactly where it is. And I've actually alphabetized the manga this year by the title of the series because I noticed that readers don't really know the name of the mangaka, the name of the creator. So I alphabetized it by series and I got these nice alphabetical dividers. So it's really super organized and kids can see it as soon as they enter just the alphabet, the manga section. So making sure you have a manga section. And then my last tip, tip three, read manga. Uh, nothing says more than being able to engage a reader in an honest and authentic conversation about a book that you've mutually read and readers will see that you also value manga as real reading and that you genuinely want to celebrate and share their reading experiences. So pick up a manga, maybe one of the ones that I suggested, and just get started, get comfortable with it. And you might find yourself just as addicted as those readers. <laughs> and uh, feel free to check out my website, mangaandlibraries.com. You can access free webinars, free book lists, free resource lists, so you can get all the information that you need to become a manga librarian yourself. And feel free to follow me on Twitter at jrlibrarian, jr for Jillian Rudis and librarian, because that's what I am. Our August episode will explore trends in library school. Is there a story or topic you'd like us to cover next? Let us know. Thanks for listening.